said that in an insane world, sane people eventually conclude that they are the ones that are insane. You know, I think that for anyone trying to follow Jesus into the 21st century, this vital axiom ought to be tattooed on the inside of our eyelids so that we won't easily forget it. You know, I'm glad you decided to walk with me a while on the Road to Shalom podcast, exploring what's wrong with the world by rediscovering the way things are supposed to be, why they're not, and what you and I can do to move the needle back in the right direction. I'm Fran Shaka, the host of The Road to Shalom. And before we get back on the road, I wanted to let you know something pretty amazing that I discovered kind of by accident last week. This tiny little podcast has listeners in over 1,500 cities scattered throughout 58 countries. That's really cool, you know? I mean, most of us are in the U.S., of course, but still. I'm humbled and profoundly encouraged. Okay, back to this idea of sane folks, concluding that they're the ones who are insane. This idea of not only being convinced, but truly grounded in what constitutes reality has always been foundational. But in a world that believes that God is dead and Michael Jackson is alive, well, the waters we're starting to sail our boats in have gotten pretty murky. You know, conspiracy theories are the new franchise, and multiple narratives about reality are on the menu, or the smorgasbord, depending on what you're hungry for. But I thought that before we walk into this minefield of sanity and insanity and how we look at the world, it would be helpful to do a quick flyover of this idea of God's story, his meta-narrative that I talked about in the last episode. If you recall, I likened the Bible, the story of the one God, to a play that had five acts, all right? Act one was the commencement, we said, the beginning, the introduction of the key players and the stage itself. Act two was conflict, the introduction of sin, or as we put it, the loss of shalom, the beginning of things not being the way they're supposed to be. The rest of the Old Testament we called complication. This was act three. The storyline deepening into many shades of shalomic loss interspersed with pockets of prophetic hope for healing, all right? Act four was the climax, the entrance of God's solution to shalom's absence, the incarnation, God himself taking on skin in Yeshua, or Jesus as we call him. That was the four gospels in our Bible. And speaking of Yeshua, the Apostle Paul said that he himself is our shalom, our peace. All right. So Act 4 launched the reversal of everything that went sideways in Act 2. And then the final act of God's one story, Act 5, we said had three scenes in it. Scene one of Act 5 was basically the first century, the age of apostles and the expansion of, into the known world of the good news of God's plan to unite all things in heaven on earth in his Messiah. That was the rest of the New Testament except for one book, the last book, right? Act 5, scene 2 is the present age. This is where you and I are living, or stuck as it feels sometimes. This is the age of the Spirit of God leading us subjectively in concert with the Scriptures leading us objectively. And I said in the last episode that this is a tough time right now to know exactly what to do, and it's an easy time to get it wrong. And let's face the music here, beloved. God's people have done plenty of both in the last few months, all right? The final scene, scene three of Act 5, is the last book of our Bible, the book of Revelation. 
And I said in the last episode that scene three of Act 5 we could call consummation, the end of all that's wrong. It's the end of a long chapter of pain, the restoration of shalom, the death of death itself, the extermination of evil and the flourishing of everything that's good. It's the total recovery of everything that was lost because of Adam and Eve in Act 2 and the final fulfillment of everything that was secured and initiated by Yeshua in Act 4. This is the one story of the one God. It's the meta-narrative that we said provides the best explanation to life as we really see it. As long as we also admit that, in the words of Paul, we see in a mirror dimly right now because we're still in scene two of Act 5, right? This is the basis both of our hope and our humility. Beloved, if we're arrogant and proud about this story, we're in the wrong story. We're in the wrong story. All right. And being in the right meta narrative is vital for the long haul, not just peace of mind in the midst of a pandemic, but because when it comes to going the distance, and by that I mean finishing well, dying without regret or shame, if you and I are not surrounded by people of shared values and vision, we will slowly but surely come to the conclusion that our zeal is misplaced or at least misappropriated. We will allow our convictions, the things we really hold dear, to soften and slowly accommodate ourselves to the prevailing narrative of those around us. In short, for those of us in the faith community, we'll become more like Christian tourists on vacation than subjects of a kingdom on a mission. We'll be thinking more on where we are rather than where we're headed. And just like real tourists, we won't really care much about the lives of those around us because our focus will be on maximizing our visit, right? And also, just like real tourists, those around us will know we really don't care. And beloved, this is like spiritual dementia in a way. We won't recognize or sense this slow disintegration. And part of the reason we won't is that we will unconsciously have surrounded ourselves with other tourist Christians rather than story-driven believers who collectively remind each other of who we are, why we're here, and what we're to be about until the final curtain falls on the one story. Sanity, beloved, after all, is living in a manner that corresponds with what's real. Feelings are important. But sincerity is not proof of anything. I mean, I can tell you that I've found profound meaning and purpose for my life since I put a stewed tomato in my right sneaker. And you can laugh all you want, but you can't tell me I'm wrong. At least if feelings are the final frontier, you can't. And for those who claim kinship to Yeshua, to Jesus, and fealty to him as their king, sanity is owning an identity, a purpose, and a mission that are rooted firmly in the one story of the one God that we looked at in the last episode. So in short, we need a mental model that consistently reminds us where we are at all times. A kind of a sort of a, I don't know, an existential GPS, I guess, a reality check, something that will always make sense of what we're seeing and experiencing simultaneously providing hope and direction. It will likely be more unconscious than conscious, Unless, of course, I'm around other sane people and we begin to talk about life and keep telling ourselves the truth. 
it's also going to be typically unsystematic because it involves the world of human beings, and we tend to be that way, right? Unsystematic. And if left unattended, though, it can deteriorate, or worse, it can be hijacked. Yet it operates at the deep motivational levels of our lives. So unlike a worldview which may or may not have anything to do with how we actually end up living, this mental model really does. It's kind of the gyroscope in our whole life. And as Christians, we all need this. We need a story to be in. I've said this over and over on this podcast. And I, and I think Paul alluded to something like this when he told the believers in Colossae how they should live while they're in scene two while they were waiting for scene three. Here's what he said. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's so cool. All right. But what happens if you don't know the one story of the one God? What if you think there isn't an adventure you're supposed to choose? Well, the short answer is that we'll simply choose our own adventure, all right? And the choose-your-own-adventure gene in our Adamic residue is really dominant, like brown eyes. I mean, it trumps pretty much everything, especially among believers who don't know the one story of the one God. And as a result, in a biblically illiterate world— which unfortunately characterizes a growing percentage of American evangelicalism, Christian versions of a choose-your-own-adventure have sprung up and spread like Bermuda grass. I mean, counterfeit mental models of what the Christian life is, what it should look like. They've become as populous and popular as conspiracy theories. In fact, some of them are conspiracy theories. And because bad theology is incestuous by nature— a variety of step-cousins of this choose-your-own-adventure Christian version exist as well. And the reason they're so attractive and have so much suction is because they simultaneously massage our Adamic nature and use language that's connected to the five acts of God's one story. They sound and feel like good theology. And unfortunately, among many American evangelicals, good theology is good because it's a theology that makes you feel good. It fits the ultimate reality test of our era, right? There are a couple Christian versions of this choose-your-own-adventure approach to life that have the most traction within American evangelicalism. I just want to kind of call them out, and then we'll talk about something as a third option near the end. The first choose-your-own-adventure Christian edition, we could call it Stuck in Scene 2, Longing for Scene 3. Stuck in Scene 2, Longing for Scene 3. All right, now, there are varieties of this edition, but the best-known one's been around since the 19th century. But a few years ago, it was popularized and given near-viral status by the 16-book series called Left Behind, which even spawned several movies and, believe it or not, some video games. Theological arguments aside, the most unfortunate yet inevitable byproduct of this neutered version of the one story which orbits more around the future than the present through its myopic preoccupation with the book of Revelation, is what it does to the psyche of the believer. It puts their body here because Act 5, Scene 2 is where we live, but their mind and heart there in Scene 3, the end of the story. 
All right, I need to take just a minute and lay something on the table of this conversation here that is vital. And that's the purpose of what's called predictive prophecy in the Bible, those passages that talk about the future. I like to think of them like movie trailers, tempting snippets of what's to come that give enough information for you to have an idea of what's coming, but not enough to be sure. And contrary to popular opinion, trailers are always for the present not the future when it comes to the Bible. Predictive prophecy's place in the one story is to be the ground of hope in the midst of painful obedience or grueling shalom-restoring ministry in our present life, beloved. God understands this. His people always need to know the certainty of the future in order to stay faithful in the present, especially when their present is painful, confusing, and prolonged. All right. Okay. Back to that first version of a Christian choosing your own adventure, this idea of living in scene two, but longing for scene three. Well, it hijacks scene three from being a trailer and twists it into something pointing to the future instead of a source and hope in the present as God really wanted it to be. And beloved, when someone's gaze is directed away from the present, it's unlikely that there will be much passion or interest in restoring shalom in the present. Does that make sense? And to complicate this matter more, typically in this scenario, the gospel is reduced to getting people saved to avoid God's coming wrath, which will be poured out on those who've been left behind. All right. This choose your own adventure Christian edition essentially cuts the heart out of mission by taking the restoration of Shalom completely out of the picture by focusing only on the future. All right, the second model of the Choose Your Own Adventure Christian edition has its bookmark stuck in the wrong place, too. We could call this version Living Gratefully in Scene 2. All right, this perversion of the one story rewrites the script so that Yahweh has a supporting role, but you and I are the star. We are told that he wants it this way, too. This is how God wants it. This is kind of the Instagram version of the one story. No shalom here because there's no mission here. There's also no purpose because there's no plot, right? This is pure, unadulterated, choose-your-own-adventure, dressed up and ready for church. Health and wealth theology has its own version of it, in which the good news of the gospel, what makes it good, is that Jesus suffered so you don't have to suffer, and he was poor so you don't have to be, all right? You know, upon closer examination, we discover in this version that God works for us. And it transforms the adoption aspect of our identity that we've been brought into a new family. It changes it into an excuse for excess and privilege instead of submission and responsibility. Books like Your Best Life Now and It's Your Time make no excuses about where a Christian's real focus should be in their titles. Humanity, not the glory of God and the restoration of all things, becomes the center of the gospel. Gratitude becomes the banner and banter for this counterfeit, right? I mean, if you listen carefully, you'll hear plenty of, I really thank the Lord for this or thank the Lord for that being pronounced in this model, as if God is pleased by what we've done to his story by putting ourselves at the center, like a proud father watching his son star at a ball game, right? And getting saved in this model is important because it's all about getting in. The idea of going out, giving up, giving away, well, these aren't on the agenda because they're not in the script. I suspect that the reason this version of the Choose Your Own Adventure is so popular is that it focuses on the present only. 
and beloved, remember that scene two is the one part of the story for which we have absolutely no handbook. We had said that scene two of Act 5 is what we called spirit-led improvisation. Unfortunately, this Choose Your Own Adventure Christian edition is improvisation without the spirit. Now, there's probably a spirit in this, but it sure isn't God's. All right. Now, I realize this sounds cynical and it sounds critical, and it is. But I think it's better coming from me than Saturday Night Live, right? Plus, we're talking about the story here, not baptismal modes or tithing. Folks died in the Old Testament for getting this wrong. In fact, folks died in the New Testament for this very thing, turning the gospel into a means of personal gain. All right, I've saved the best option for last. Seriously, we must have a model that is big enough to accommodate the entire story provide answers to life as we see it, and still give us hope and perseverance for shalomic restoration. And I do not believe that this one is a choose-your-own-adventure. I think this third option is choose-the-one-adventure. Choose-the-one-adventure. And we're going to call it living in scene two, longing for scene three, driven by acts two and four. Living in scene two, longing for scene three, but driven by acts two and four. And beloved, this is not just a long title. It's an expansive and highly nuanced model. It's biblically literacy based. It demands a firsthand, constantly maturing understanding of the one story of the one God. It requires a mature appreciation for sin, understanding it as an explanation for what we see around us that isn't the way things are supposed to be. It values people, not because of what they believe or how they behave, but because they are fellow image bearers of God. This model champions the centrality of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ as the essential and instrumental turning point in the one story of the one God. It engenders responsibility for the restoration of shalom as the birthright and the mission of every adopted and justified son of Adam or daughter of Eve. And it values the hope provided by scene three but it refuses to focus on the future to the neglect of the present. That's important. This model embodies a realistic optimism about just how much we can restore shalom in this life, but it's convinced of its full flowering in the life to come. This model sees all of life through the pages of the one story of the one God and his plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in heaven and earth in Christ. All right, And this model is a raging torrent of grace. God has drawn us into, but beloved, it flows only in this life and on this earth. You know, too many of us spend our time focusing on fellowship and worship. I mean, there's been lawsuits about it for crying out loud. And let me say this slowly and carefully. Beloved, we've got this backwards, focusing our time, our money, our resources now on things we're going to do forever, fellowship and worship. I mean, you're going to have fellowship and worship for eternity, beloved, on the new earth. And it's going to be the real thing. I mean, I don't care how good the fellowship and worship is or was before COVID at your church. The new earth will make it seem like a funeral for real. But I think we're spending time, money, and resources now on things we're going to do forever and neglecting time, money, and resources now for the one thing we can't do on the new earth. And what's that? It's ministry, beloved. It's ministry. It's the restoration of shalom. There's no ministry on the new earth because there's no sin. You know, maybe it's time we started living like we really are, living in scene two, longing for scene three, 
but driven by Act 2 and Act 4. Living in Scene 2, the present. Longing for Scene 3, the return of Jesus. But we're driven by Act 2, the fall of man into sin, and Act 4, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Living in Scene 2, longing for Scene 3, driven by Act 2 and 4. That's the Choose the One Adventure, beloved. Think about it. See you next time. Shalom.